This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. Welcome to episode 109 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm a Gryffindor. And I'm a Ravenclaw. And this week we discuss Alfonso Cuaron's 2004 film, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. So, I don't know about you, but this this movie, like with everything we know about Children of Men after covering that months ago, uh, and knowing this like leads into Children of Men, do you feel like there's a connection between these two in a weird way? um yeah i mean i suppose there is i noticed there's a there's a a a oneer in here um that that is uh not nearly as technically incredible as some of the stuff we get in children and men but i could see some precursors sure yeah for for me it was like this sort of like very obviously british story that's like muted colors and like dark it's a dark film like there's there's things that that uh especially in comparison to the other Harry Potter movies. But I don't know. There's something about like maybe watching this as a double feature, like Prisoner of Azkaban and Into Children of Men, uh, that kind of just like in keeping with somebody's filmography. I don't know. I, I was just excited thinking about the connections. Um, but you so you talked about the Warner. Let's talk about that very, very briefly here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the use of that Warner that that we'll talk about that's in the Leaky Cauldron. You want to describe what happens in that scene? Yeah. So basically, it's the Leaky Cauldron scene. We mm-hmm. open and and Harry's seeing the Weasleys. He's seeing Arthur and, and Molly and greeting them. The whole Leaky Cauldron, there's a whole bustle going on, people cleaning, people arriving. And then Arthur takes Harry off to the side and starts talking to him about um, Sirius Black and like why he might come looking for him. And, and as we as we learn more and things get darker and we learn that like he might be trying to kill Harry, we descend into like darkness Um so that's yeah. kind of the, the premise of the scene, but well, and you also have the framing of having Sirius Black be in in between them, um, looming at one point, and then in between them, literally while they're talking about him, and he he's he's hit the threat of Sirius Black is looming over this movie, and some of that stuff you could look at it and say like, maybe it's a bit heavy handed, but um, the language of this movie is is on one hand like sort of overt in a lot of that kind of stuff. But I think when you remember that what the age group is that this movie's technically designed for, so I think it is a fantastic, fantastically crafted movie. Yet it's not done in a way that's going to be inaccessible for a younger audience. So you mentioned uh, the fact that you know the other one in Children of Men is maybe more pronounced and maybe more technically amazing. Yeah. Um, it was pretty funny. Uh, apparent, I was reading something that said that. Alfonso Cuaron was talking to Guillermo del Toro about like he was about the fact that he had been approached for this film and basically Guillermo del Toro was like are you an idiot like read the book and take it he's like he's like if you read the book like you're gonna take it and I guess Uh once he realized he was gonna take it Guillermo del Toro gave him the advice of kind of toning down some of his like really fantastical filmmaking experimental things like toning it down a bit uh and I think that that like you're right um we both have seen this, this video that, and we we've swear by this channel at this point. Like we talk about it enough, but <laughs> yeah. it's a YouTube channel called Nerd Writer, and Nerd Writer One. This, 
Nerdwriter one. This I think might be my favorite of his of his video essays, and he really dives oh, really? into like why. I don't know if I'm ready to say that, but I, I do like it. So the, the well, the reason why is because I I subscribe to a lot of what he was saying. This idea that like these movies were as important to kids growing up as the books were, and these movies were because of this movie, like the Coron film, and and like teaching a, a film language and teaching what technical what technically helps tell the story of a film and what pushes along the idea or the tone or whatever whatever you're trying to portray these techniques can be used to to portray that and so i think it's really important for a young audience like people who are watching harry potter at this time to be exposed to that and and i love that that nerd writer brings this up he talks about how these early scenes the couple of early scenes are maybe more in keeping with what you would see in one of the one of the first two harry potter films like blowing up ant marge and and like the night bus are very mm-hmm. like in keeping with that more whimsical feel and then yeah. moving into this darker tone and using these techniques to portray that and i think really efficiently too is that that's the main thing from the leaky cauldron is um, you're getting a sense of atmosphere and environment. And that's the main thing that I think too, there are a couple of things that I think he really brings to this Harry Potter universe and a sense of environment and a sense of like laying out where things are and like putting it in the mind of everybody who's watching Harry Potter. Um, mm-hmm. I think he does that really well. And the scene in the leaky cauldron, it's the details in the background we talked about in, in uh, children of men. It's like these, um, there's a practical effect early on in one of the leaky cauldron shots where somebody walks up and like makes a glass disappear into a rag, like somebody who's like clean a barkeep or something. And like just those little things, like somebody's doing practical magic in a Harry Potter movie, <laughs> like, That's cool. like an actual magician is, do- is was like brought on to do that. And so like that sort of like background um, scene setting environment ambience like i think that that is what makes a a really indelible film and something that like will keep you thinking and like make the world feel really realized so it sounds like in a general sense uh you uh, love this movie this is I, I, I it's really hard for me to not just out and say this is my favorite harry potter movie mm-hmm. um i want to say i want to say for now it's my favorite that we've watched and as we go on i think I'll, I'll revisit the other ones and analyze them as as deeply as i have these first three and then I'll, yeah. I'll come to a conclusion then. So for me, uh, I agree with everything you're saying. I think this is a fantastic film. I think it is extremely well-crafted. However, I think it is flawed in some ways, um, in one particular way in general. But I, I want to sort of tease that as something I'm going to explore throughout this episode. Because um, there is also, I've noticed among Harry Potter fans, a contingent of people who don't really like this movie that much or think that it's not their favorite, at least. You know what I mean? Right. Or think that it's overrated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I'm picking up on some of the reasons why for mm-hmm. me going through this experience of just now reading the book for the first time and then immediately watching the movie. I think I'm not picking up on some stuff that maybe I would have missed otherwise. Um, but yeah, I'm not going to like fully go into that yet. I'm going to tease that for later in the episode. However, talking about the muted colors um, reminded me of one of the things I think is brilliant about this movie. And that's there. There's these motifs. There's these uh Moments where he's foreshadowing things um, all through the language of cinema and uh, so much of it, it works so well that I, the more I was thinking about, the more I was unpacking more and more of these things. And I'll, I'll talk about them as they come up probably as we go. But you mentioned the muted colors earlier. And to me, that completely mirrors the uh, sort of atmospheric thematic stuff of this story of um, you have sort of this warm, safe place of Hogwarts, yet it's being encroached upon by the outer outside world, which is dangerous and scary and adult and dark. 
And so all the time you get these scenes where like someone is like they're they're inside Hogwarts having a, having a fun time, and then we zoom out and go through the window, and it's surrounded by Dementors, right? And then you have them on the train, and there's a huge storm going on outside, and there's just all these times where it's like what would otherwise just be this like uh, congenial, friendly, happy scene, yet it's surrounded by some sort of darkness. And the muted colors, I think, adds to that because in the, in, certain, in the frame, you'll often see like one or two things that has color, whether it's um, someone's neckwear, like uh, like we see like a red scarf or we see um, uh, Hagrid's like really fun tie he's wearing later. And like some of this stuff has a little bit of color and a pop to it, but it'll be almost the only thing on screen that has that. So it mm-hmm. feels um, kind of like it's surrounded by darkness and gray and kind of being suppressed in a way that the other early movies do not. Right. Like there's color everywhere. Everything's so vibrant. Um, to where it's interesting because it's like that language of uh, cinematography, I think, is backing up the themes of of the movie in, in a really cool way. Yeah. And and I think more than anything, this this is a movie about transitions, right? It's a transition from more childhood things to more adult things. It's a transition from the movies also in, fall, in keeping with that. And these kids are growing older. They're not children anymore. They're going to push back against authority. They're going to push back against things that that you know as they become individuals they're going to push back against things and i think that that's that's really shown through the characters i think that this is one of the movies where the actors really start to take on their role a little more rather than rather than it being about you know some kids who are kind of you know they're all like cute kids who are running around and they're all brave in the ways and they're all smart in ways and they're all silly in ways and yet I feel like in this movie, we really get a differentiate, like differentiating moments where it's like Harry's brave, but he's also scared. He's he's fearful of the Dementors and the things that scare him are like very existential things, like very scary mm. death and all of these things that he's had to deal with trauma. And so like he's he's dealing with that. And yet he's brave through that. And we see again, we see all the characters being brave and smart and all of this yeah. and silly moments and all that. But this is the mo- I think this is where we see Hermione really come into her own as like she's smart clearly but she's clever she she's yeah, resourceful capable. she's exactly mm-hmm. and so it's more than just like book smart it's more it's like really starting to flesh out these characters and and have them like concretely shown in their own roles yeah it reminded me of something else with the with the my muted colors thing I was noticing is I think it forces you to pay attention to other things that are going on that I think when you have a, this feast of, of, of like bright colors and um, interesting things to look at, you kind of get dazzled by them in earlier mm-hmm. movies. But here, like you'll see this drab scene and you'll be fo- you'll be forced to think about like how the camera's moving or mm-hmm. what exactly is being shown or the performance of the actor that you're looking at instead of like paying attention to the crazy thing that's going on behind them or that weird fun thing on the table in front of them that's you know so bright and so it 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 forces you to look into different places on the screen than you did in the first two movies so you watch it differently right and i think you're like burdened by this like bleakness right so it's like yeah. it's keeping you it's it's tension through the movie it's like this like it's looming over the entire movie and we basically you know said that but i think that with the kind of things that you've been talking about, like the sort of um, the reflections and the mirrors and the windows. And these are all, some of these are basically arguments that, that nerd writer is making this idea of like reflection and inner thought in these characters and like, and seeing themselves like using a, like a mirror as a reflection. And then, and then again, the camera camera, honestly, that's the thing that really just blows me away in this film is just the camera moves and, or, or like the fact that it's constantly moving, right? Mm-hmm. It's 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 always in motion. 
it's always interesting to look at. And I find that to be, you know, there are directors who I think can just like masterfully pull off a lockdown shot or even a movie like Yasujiro Ozu, who's a who's a Japanese filmmaker. And he's famous for just having lockdown shots, wide shots and just like letting life play out before the lens. Um, this is kind of the opposite of that. This is like the yeah. movement through space and the way that, you know, it can be overused. But I think that in, in a case like this, it's it's very clearly motivated. And that's the main thing. As long as it's motivated and it's adding something and it's moving us through space, that's something that not a lot of other mediums can do. So I think that like that's used expertly in this movie to, as Nerdwriter puts it, he to like put a sort of um, like a forward momentum to the film, like in like this sort of like pacing that, that really keeps everything interesting. And personally, yeah. just like seeing seeing camera movements, I find to be really engaging in film so so like that yeah. the, I, I guess the main thing i want to say with with this film in terms of in, in terms of the all the harry potter films is i i don't know what future harry potter films without this film setting the tone and setting the vibe we're talking about bleak colors that 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 plays through like bleak colors and this sort of like tone that we get here this dark oppression of of sort of tension and and bleakness and maybe the dark side is kind of looming over us that that plays through the rest of the movies and i think that i I don't know i'd be weird to even think of like if chris chris columbus had directed this one the third one because he directed the first two like what is what does prisoner of azkaban look like with chris chris columbus uh directing it because originally he was attached to do all of the movies wow yeah i mean alternate universe stuff who knows um, but I, I have a lot of like specific stuff I want to talk about, but I feel like uh, now's not the time. I want to get into some plot before we get to that. Um, do you have anything to talk about before we get into plot? I did want to talk just about Corone at this point in his career. Okay, yeah, we yeah. talked about him more in our in our Children of Men coverage, and I, I I recommend you check that out if you're if you're interested in him and his background. But he's a Mexican filmmaker, and he I mean he's at this point prolific. But this was only his fifth film at, um, in his career, and he he was trying to get children of men made and we talked about this in our children of men coverage but he he couldn't get funding he couldn't get somebody to back it and so he was approached for the harry potter movie and he realized that if he did this it could not only help him kind of get some some context and some some uh perspective on this british you know land and like everything about it uh so he he took this in order to basically do one for them and one for me which is what a lot of filmmakers do you'll see filmmakers like christopher nolan did this for a while where he did like one of his own and then he'd do a property that's already been established with the dark knight and inception and then you know the dark knight and then interstellar things like that um Mm. i think this was a case of corone doing that He, he saw the studio system and he was like well if i work in the studio system i'll get exposure and i'll you know if i do if i pull it off then there's a lot that you can move from raise his profile with that exactly so yeah so he did that and i but i think he approached it as he would approach any other film and i really respect him for that because as we've talked about it i think he brought a level of filmmaking that hadn't been seen up to this point and honestly like you don't necessarily see in in a ton of these huge franchises yeah that's interesting i i I want to talk a little bit about that idea i know it's kind of an aside but the idea of one for them and one for me um artistically um i find interesting um because i think for me, I'm always excited when I see, not necessarily an existing IP, but I, when I see a, a a well-respected, highly capable director taking on a project that has wide appeal, you know, and like gets gets everybody excited. And I I I guess my my one thing I don't like about that saying is that it sort of implies that those movies are somehow like lesser. 
Like, it's like, oh, yes, yeah, that's for them. It's not for me. It doesn't make mm-hmm. me feel good. But, like, I I would challenge creatives to find just as much joy in, in creating something that has wide appeal, you know, and... And you and 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 still pushing boundaries, and I think he does here. I'm not saying that specifically Alfonso Cuarón didn't do that or something, but just in general, when we're talking about this idea, um, I, I, it always it always seems a little off to me to to act like anything that is super broad is going to be um, somehow less artistically valid, you know. And and uh, I don't know. I, I'm not saying you believe that at all, but just that's that saying. I've heard that in a lot of places. Writers will talk about this sometimes. Um, and I don't know. I feel like, uh, the, the broadly appealing stories can be for you as well as a creator. <laughs> don't, don't Definitely. lock that off from yourself. Well, and I think that most people who use that saying aren't necessarily saying it in, in like a derogatory or negative way. I think that it's more of a, um, it's a system, right? So the studio system, you have more, more people have a say in those films. Whereas you're saying one for them as in like, I have to work very closely with other people who are going to tell me what I can and cannot do versus one right. for me, which means like I have full lock picture, everything. I have final script. So so when you say them, who who are you imagining them are? Like, is that the studio? I'm, I, yeah, I'm imagining studio. Because I always thought it to be the like the fans, uh, like one uh, for them, like the masses. No, I was th- I always think like the studio system. Okay, interesting. That's a different read on that saying. Because, yeah, I can see that. If it's like, I'm going to make one that the studio system will be happy with, um, then, yeah, that's, that's almost a different thing. I guess it's because I've heard that same saying in, like, writing, whereas mm-hmm. that doesn't make as much sense to do that. It's more like, I'm going to write something for them as in it's going to be mass appeal, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to write something for me as in it's it's artistically relevant to me, but maybe not a lot of people are going to love it. And th- that's fine if you want to think of it that way. I just think that you can be sort of um, selling yourself short on some of those more broadly appealing projects, like... They don't have to be something that you don't find less interesting. Yeah. And I think we are seeing a lot of studios kind of give filmmakers the reins some more. You know, they have to stay yeah. within a certain boundary. Like there's certain things that have to be hit. But I think that like like someone someone who comes to mind for me is Taika Waititi. I, I love this director. Everything that he did until Thor Ragnarok, I was... shouting from the rooftops i love all of those films up to that point and then he got thor ragnarok and i was like this is an interesting voice to bring into a movie like this and i think ultimately like that's a taika film although it's a marvel studio film that's that's a a great that's a great example of what i'm talking about like that can be that can be fantastic and should be celebrated you know as you know someone who's coming in and, and hopefully he doesn't feel like i made this movie for them not for me you know right and then but like we can also see we can also see him like bouncing to the other side now and he's making jojo rabbit which is Cle- yeah. clearly probably for him you know so it's like yeah, kind of the for maybe. them for him kind of thing but i don't yeah. know I, I like you say it's kind of what you get out of it ultimately i think if any filmmaker would tell you you know you're going to dedicate two years of your life or three years of your life to this movie so you have to care about it very deeply so i don't know it's it's uh yeah. i think it's an interesting thing to talk about so yeah with all that being said i just wanted to kind of put into perspective where we were at with with Caron. we he direct this is his fifth movie up until this point, he had directed Solo Con to Pariah, A Little Princess, Great Expectations, and then the one that I think really put a, him on the map for a lot of people as far as like an indie film and, and that did well at festivals is E2 Mama Tambien. And so apparently what that did was because of the success of that film and so many people saw it, names like J.K. Rowling and I think David Heyman was, was a producer at this point, and they both 
were like 100% on board to have him there and they had to, you know, they had to convince the studio to allow it. because up until that, I mean, Itu Mama Tambien is clearly not in the same. It's it's like a coming of age. It's more I, I wouldn't even say it's coming of age. It's more like I think it's just an adult. Uh it's an adult film about coming of age. And so there's like a lot of sex in it and things like that. But you know, they could see the the director through his work and they could they could mm-hmm. see like I guess Little Princess was the one that really sold them on the fact that he could he could direct this movie. That's really fascinating too, yeah. I mean it's such a big decision because we talked about in our book coverage that this novel marks a turning point point in the series. And J.K. Rowling had to know that, obviously, she wrote it, going into this and and I think the decision was made we need to go in a different direction creatively with our director than we've gone in the first two to sort of mark that shift and so I think it's smart to to look for someone else to do it and yeah I mean it would be fascinating like exercise thought experiment to watch that movie uh and and try and imagine what someone like J.K. Rowling might be thinking while watching it, trying to like project onto Harry Potter as a franchise. Like, what is this director going to be like if I if we were if we tried to get him? It, it would just be interesting to think about. I don't know. Like, what did she see in that movie that made her think this is the guy? <laughs> I think it's just the the voice, right? You see you see a creative mind, and you see someone who can who can craft an an interesting story and take you on a journey through film, right? Through the camera. Um, yeah. And ultimately, I think, like I say, I think it was a mixture of A Little Princess and Etu Mama Tambien. And then, uh, you know, David Heyman was pushing for it. So ultimately, I think they got it. They got it done. But it is interesting to think Chris Columbus was was attached to do to direct all of them. And I guess uh, to to this point, he realized like he wasn't going to get to see his kids grow up if he didn't if he didn't back off some of these movies. But and that's also not to say I don't like the idea of like, oh, Corona is a better director. I think that they both are very good at what they do. Right. Chris Columbus very clearly has a style that works so well for those first two movies. Yeah. And it was appropriate for the books that he was adapting. It would have been inappropriate to take this vision and apply it to the previous book. It it wouldn't have matched the material. Definitely. Um, So I think we can move into like plot at this point. I did want to mention just some of the actors very quickly because as usual, the Harry Potter movies have British royalty as as like literally they have sirs and people who've been knighted and and just like everyone in in britain got involved in these movies and the addition the addition in this film is just mind-blowing so unfortunately we had the the passing of richard harris who was the first dumbledore and so he he had to be recast you know i I think people have different opinions on this but michael gambon comes in and he's the the new dumbledore i want to ask you before i answer what do you how do you feel about the new dumbledore how do you feel about how he fits. I think maybe not even comparing it to Harris's performance, but more specifically the book. Right. Um, so, I mean, I think it's impossible not to compare it to the previous performance, especially when we're talking about the movies. This, like, you know, going in as a moviegoer, this is the, you know, this is the change. This is like one of the biggest moments of going like, oh, this is weird and different. And obviously it's due to a tragedy and you can't control that. But it's interesting to me too that this character takes a shift um, and I don't know that it was necessarily the actor. I think a lot of people like say, oh, this actor played him so much more this and that. But that could have been direction, too. Mm-hmm. And and I think Dumbledore in this movie moves away from what I what I think of in the first two movies is almost a Santa wizard mm-hmm. who is the head of Hogwarts. He's right. very warm. He's very like fatherly, grandfatherly. And he, he and, and all this stuff. Right. And, and here we get like a sassier more sarcastic, joking, 
uh, maybe a little bit less warm due to that. And you combo that with a change in actor, and it's a little disorienting, I think, for people. Mm -hmm. But um, it it marks a change in how uh, Dumbledore will be played throughout the rest of the movies, right? And it it actually gives the character maybe a little bit more of an edge to him, a little bit more uh, dimensions to his personality. Mm Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I th- ultimately, I, I really, really enjoyed Richard Harris's performance. I think there's a lot of mystery there, right? For me, it was always like, he's so mysterious. There's just like, I could never fig- figure out what's in his, what's going on in his head. He's right. so all-knowing. And then um, I think knowing what I know going down the line of books, I think that Michael Gambon really fits what Dumbledore sh- could be portrayed as because um like you said i think there's more depth to it i think there's more like he's not just all-knowing he's not just this there's dumbledore can make mistakes dumbledore um you know is quirky and i i, I like there's there's a lot of energy there right there's yeah, a lot quirky's of quirky's a good word for it and, and I, I enjoy that and i like that performance i do understand people getting used to a certain way that things have been done the past two movies and and like missing that um and i totally understand that but ultimately i think i do like that kind of like more energetic more quirky and and over the top Dumbledore. So and other additions that we have to talk about Emma Thompson mm-hmm. incredible as Trelawney. You talked about we talked about her a lot in the in our book coverage but like yeah. she just absolutely pulls that character off of off the There's page, so many right? funny like little moments with that character like the uh, just the introduction about the the sight and she's like oh the greatest sight into the beyond and then she like bumps into the table and it's just it's so funny. Yeah, I read that she, her glasses are literally magnifying glasses. Like the the <laughs> that's why her eyes are so large. Yeah, I believe um, it. Yeah, so and then David David Thewlis as as Lupin, who I mentioned okay. is like Lupin's one of my favorite parts of all of these movies. Great, great a performance. Um, it's it's actually kind of weird to see him playing a genuinely good guy, um, but of course he's got this dark edge to him, so it works. But um, I the most recent thing I've seen him in, I think. Um, obviously, I saw him in Wonder Woman as the as the bad guy. But but other than that, Fargo season three. I don't know if you've been keeping up with Fargo. Have you been watching that show? Yeah, I've seen the first three seasons. I, I, the fourth one hasn't come out yet, right? Right, right. I, I don't think so. Um, but season three, he's the main villain. And he mm-hmm. is so good in season three as the villain. It's yeah. so scary and, and otherworldly. And... Uh, it just I, I have a lot of admiration for for that actor and the stuff that he does. And, and it's cool to see him here. And I just couldn't help but think of that. Like, obviously, it comes much later in his career. But um, if you're a fan of, of, of his work, check out Fargo season three. Mm-hmm. All right. All of Fargo is all amazing, in my opinion. So and, and then, of course, the other addition is Gary Oldman as Sirius Black. Yes. Love Gary Oldman. Love him. And and for my money is is. I don't know. He's one of the greatest living actors, period. He he everything I, yeah. he's ever been in is incredible. And he's done serious, he's done weird, he's been a villain, he's been an ally, he's been all of these things. One of the, and not just a villain. He's like one of the greatest villains. I mean, not just one of them. He he has played some of the greatest villains that I've ever seen in movies. Yeah. He can be so good as a villain. He can also be so likable as as yeah. as a hero or a, a protagonist of a movie. Um, he's got totally. incredible range, and, and honestly, he's a howitzer brought in to play this role. Now, it's an important role, obviously, going forward, especially, and in this movie, but he has relatively small uh, amount of screen time, mm-hmm. and um, the just, he puts a, he's like, uh, he really commits to it, and I don't know if that's maybe the filmmaker affecting him and getting the right performance out of him or what, but he's delivering on his small amount of screen time 
and 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 also you know just the 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 moving images that they captured of him screaming and just looking like a madman in all of those like uh, wanted posters is so mm-hmm. good to where even when he's not on screen doing anything like he's still looming though i think for a long time uh i i think he you know his he's had mounting popularity maybe even pushed along by by you know movies like The Dark Knight where he's Commissioner Gordon, and then right. like movie like this where he's Sirius Black. It's so funny that he's Commissioner Gordon and so subdued in those movies compared to how off the wall crazy he can be in other movies. That's what I was about to get at. Is he's so transformative. He's yeah. and like I think people have been saying this forever. Is that he's so transformative in every role he's ever taken on. And you know you can see like the physical transformation, and everything like that. And a lot of people would point to like um, his Winston Churchill fairly recently. Mm-hmm. of like a per- performance that's a transformative and he's just like unrecognizable but he's done this his entire career this role yeah. is like i didn't even know who who gary oldman really was until this yeah. movie and then i see this movie and, and then i start seeing him pop up everywhere and realize how legendary he is and and you know I, I, this came out in 2004 so i would have been i would have been like 11 or 12 <laughs> i guess and so like this wow. is like right right around this time i start going back and in, into people's filmography and like really falling in love with film and, you know, see something like Leon the Professional and we get yeah. Gary Oldman. Like, oh, yeah. Everyone. <laughs> well, and like it just his over the top performances. And like you say, Commissioner Gordon is like, it's a great performance, but it's yeah. not it's not anything flashy. Was it Zorg and Fifth Element? And he's yeah. just so many great roles. He played Dracula famously. Uh, yep. he's, 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 he's done so many great things. And I think he's a perfect, perfect for this role because they needed somebody that can be scary and that mm-hmm. you can look at on a on a wanted poster and go, oh my god, that's definitely a villain, and then but they can also pull off that shift to being very very likable. Um, so so I think perfectly perfectly cast as Sirius Black, definitely. And then obviously just to speak to the returning cast that's already just filled with absolute legends, we have Maggie Smith who as McGonagall is like gotta be it's McGonagall and Lupin for me as far as like my favorite teachers Mm. they're just both absolutely incredible we have uh Alan Rickman as Snape like it's just every every single person in this Robbie Coltrane as Ruby as Hagrid I don't know like I I I think I this is my maybe my favorite Snape movie so far Mm -hmm. um and it's interesting because I I found myself uh I, I felt like a lot of the stuff he did in the book was like beyond the pale and sort of made me dislike him more um, in the book, but but here I I felt like a lot of the stuff was more understandable, and and um, I don't know, I I was kind of rooting for Snape. Yeah, I I get it, I get why people like, and Alan Rickman is like I love Alan Rickman. It's just great to see him in this role. Yeah, he absolutely kills it. I want to talk about something else that you just made me think of talking about that. Uh, you so we noticed that like a lot of the the costuming changes, like we instead of seeing the kids always in robes. We're now seeing them in like modern updated clothing. And that was a decision that was made by Corone as well as Janie Tamim. And she was the third costume designer that the series had. And I think from okay. here on, she she basically was the costume designer for the rest of the films. Um, the, I think the decision to put them in modern clothes grounded them and made them more relatable to everyone. And yeah. I think it also like went far in terms of like, representing the characters right like so what somebody wears you can you can just look at them and kind of tell stuff about them um and i think that that was used very well and also just seeing like the disheveled robes when they were wearing robes like everybody was wearing them differently some people had their cloak off some people had like the ties pulled down 
I don't know. It's just like that realism. I loved that, like, in addition to the environment that we're getting, the scenic shots that are linking together locations in Hogwarts that I think is also very important in terms of putting it in context for people's minds that mixed with like the realism of the students. And and I just think like this, this goes a long way to set up the rest of the series. Well, and we were talking about the camera movement earlier. I think uh, you, you combine that with the sort of like handheld camera feel that you get for these some of these like more spectacular scenes, like the the first time they walk into Hogwarts, um, seeing it from sort of ground person level, it, it does that. It has that effect of putting you in the scene and making it feel grounded and real in mm-hmm. a way that like a soaring shot will never feel. So uh, that that was that was definitely cool. Okay, so I think this is the perfect time to move into plot. I have a few sections that I'm going to read, like six, I believe. And then we're just going to react to to each part. So Harry Potter has been spending another dissatisfying summer with the Dursleys. When Harry's Aunt Marge insults his parents, he loses his temper and blows her up like a balloon. Harry then flees the Dursleys. The night bus delivers Harry to the Leaky Cauldron, where he is pardoned by Minister of Magic Cornelius Fudge for using magic outside of Hogwarts. After reuniting with his best friends Ron and Hermione, Harry learns that Sirius Black, a convicted supporter of the dark wizard Lord Voldemort, has escaped Azkaban prison and intends to kill Harry. Yeah, so let's talk about this opening. I, I want to actually start with the very first moment, and that's uh, lighting of the wand mm-hmm. while reading in under the, sh- under the covers, right? And uh, a couple things. First off, uh, I- is it a big deal to you? that he's using magic here so brazenly when he's not supposed to be because marge pushes him to it right but here he's just sort of like casually doing it to read yeah is that is that a problem for you i mean that's what that's what i, I kind of talked about it a little bit but it seems to be pretty inconsistent in terms of okay so in terms of like this moment for the film incredible i think it's great i think it really sets up his character he's having to hide and i love this idea of like him like not able to fully master lumos and he's like having to like constantly cast it. It's just it's I think it's really fun and really great in terms of wizarding law, which I already feel like is in- inconsistent even in the books. Um, yeah. N- n- no, I guess not. Because ultimately <laughs> yeah, he was yeah. pardoned anyway. Yeah. And, and, and I agree with that. It, it can be if you think about it too much, it can be a little bit of a plot hole, maybe. I don't know. But the thing that I that I think it has going for it is I think it is a foreshadow. It's foreshadowing the most important moment later in the movie of casting the Patronus. Because we see the the like you said struggling to cast it, it becoming more powerful, and then all of a sudden exploding in power, mm-hmm. right? And that's essentially what we see happen with Patronus later. Um, it's the opening first moment of a movie, which is always extremely important. Um, and it should be, and and I think here it's directly referencing the climax of the film. All right, so Harry blowing up Aunt Marge. Do I feel like this, this, I remember seeing this in theaters and being like, whoa, Harry has some attitude to him now. And like, really like, yeah. like relating to that. Without a wand, just out of anger. Mm-hmm. And, and not even casting a spell, right? Like just doing well, it. Well, we'll talk about magic that doesn't require a wand much later. But uh, I mean, Harry's done this before. We saw him make the glass disappear with the, with the, at the zoo in the first one. You know, it's not, so, mm, it's not like yeah. he's ever, never cast magic without a wand before. But right. yeah, I think it's showing uh, the, the other thing that I was thinking about is like this fluctuation in magic. And, I, you know, it's always clearly been there. But I, I mentioned it last episode and this idea that like Expelliarmus is a, is a is a spell that you that has differing levels of power in the mm-hmm. book. It's all three of them using Expelliarmus that, that knocks out Snape. And here in the movie, it's just one. 
And yeah. I guess it's this idea that like each spell has its own, you know, I guess you can cast it harder or something like Lumos yeah. is casting with, harder. With like, uh, if you're, if you're, you have more emotion behind it and more. Yeah. Want. So like Lumos, we saw early on, he's casting it and it's, it's like smaller and then it's small, it's larger and then it's huge. Same thing with, with Expecto Patronum. I think that that's something something really interesting that's there because it's almost like the magic isn't really quantum. It's not like one spell. It's not like a one-to-one thing per witch or wizard. Yeah, it's like the spell is a conduit um, and it opens a conduit to like your inner magic ability that is like funneling through it and you can push harder and like, you know, but you have to have that spell present to like focus it, I guess. Um, maybe you don't have to, but that's what it's serving as. So that it does a certain thing. Um but yeah, it makes sense to me, like intuitively, that you could make it even more powerful just by like if you have the power within you and you want it really badly. And I think that's the other thing it's backing up. Like this movie's telling us that Harry Potter is very powerful. Maybe he even doesn't realize how powerful he is. Mm-hmm. All right, so the he leaves and we get the first shot of him on the street in the darkness by himself. That's that first shot where you're like, okay, we're in a different, we're in a different place now. It's dark, it's right. creepy. We see the the grim at this point. We think of it as, or maybe even not even think of it. We're like, oh, that's a scary dog. He pulls yeah. his wand out. The night bus shows up. I just love like there's just him by himself and the the swing set moving and how creepy all that stuff is. It, it's just really, yeah. it it is a large signifier that things are going to be different. Yeah, and then we move on to the night bus, which is. Uh, hilarious <laughs> I, yeah. I mean it's it's it may be a little over the top um you know with, the, with some of the things that go on and the shrunken head talking and like all this stuff but uh also funny and like the 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 guy who who comes out to talk to him and like ask him what he's doing mm-hmm. he's hilarious i love the accent he's you know like that that i don't know what it's called but it's very british and it's very mm-hmm. funny um and i just love it i don't know yeah it's good it's good and and again corona is really efficient with delivering exposition right like in in terms of like getting Sirius Black out there for the first time there's a newspaper very quickly who's that Sirius Black very quickly yeah. goes goes um and yeah that scene so so that night bus scene apparently they shot the night bus traveling at normal driving speeds and all the other cars were traveling at like a snail's pace and then they sped wow. up the footage to have the night That's bus cool. like fucking zooming all over the place I <laughs> love it and we already talked about when they first arrive at Leaky Cauldron and we get the scene. But I do want to mention, also, actually, very first time they arrive, uh, one of the guys, I don't know if you caught this, is reading uh, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time, one of the like yeah. random people in there. And that just shows that it, there is a lot of like clock, time, uh, all of this stuff that um, motifs going throughout the movie, where the language of the movie is telling you that time is very important. Mm-hmm. And it's all setting up, obviously, the sort of fourth act reveal we're going to get later with the with the time turner. Um, and it was cool to, like, pick up on that seeing that, like, you know, having having somebody read that, which is also like very grounded science mm-hmm. in a in a world of magic. So it, the intersection of those two things is also important and, right. and uh, very interesting and something that uh, they're playing with. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of a of a wizard reading that book, right? And, right. And by saying by by reading it, they're saying there's something here, right? Like whether or not, you know, maybe science is a form of magic or whatever. Like they, there's still something some some substance to that. So it's or science or magic doesn't necessarily exist outside of science. Like both things can still be true, maybe in this world, right? Yeah. 
and a uh, great another great moment of uh, practical effects like there he's like using his finger to like stir that tea and like the use of like showing yeah. w- little magical things happening throughout the world i find to be so so cool and that's great in all the Harry Potter movies, honestly. That's something yeah. that I think we picked up on the past and, and continues through. That's some of the, the like really uh, charming bits of the wizarding world that everybody loves so much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, Arthur tells Harry that Sirius might be after him. And he's like, don't go looking for him. And Harry's like, why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? And then we right. go to the we're on the train. And like you said, that shot of coming up on the train with the rain falling. And it just it puts such a I don't know, such a. Yeah different filter in your mind of like what's it's a different feel here. right yeah. all the, every other time we've been on our way to hogwarts it's been full of excitement about what's to come and and this time it's dark and there's dread and there's a looming threat and and i love it for being i love it for being different because it is like yeah. even as a kid it really affected me i was like whoa so like like it, to get the same the same trip to hogwarts a third time you know, if it's like bright, sunny day, they get to Hogwarts. Not that clearly in the second movie they get there on a flying car. It's different. But I'm just saying like yeah. very bright. The train looks amazing. It's red and gold and flying along. And uh, to get that a third time, I feel like it starts to feel repetitive. So for this to be so different, I think is, is very welcome. Um, yep. And it's creepy as hell. This whole this whole thing, they're like, they go in, looping, sleeping in there. Uh, dem- here, let me just read this part, actually. The trio returns to Hogwarts for the school year on the Hogwarts Express, only for Dementors to suddenly board the train. One enters the trio's compartment, causing Harry to pass out, but new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, Professor Lupin, repels the Dementors. At Hogwarts, Headmaster Albus Dumbledore announces the Dementors will be guarding the school while Sirius is at large. Hogwarts groundkeeper Rubius Hagrid is announced as the new Care of Magical Creatures teacher. His first class goes awry when Draco Malfoy deliberately provokes the hippogriff, Buckbeak, who attacks him. Draco exaggerates his injury, and his father, Lucius Malfoy, later has Buckbeak sentenced to death. So that that encompasses a lot of things. Um, the introduction of the Dementors, we got to talk about um, the ice, the icing over of the glass, um, which later is the icing over of the water and the icing over of the of the broom that when they're flying. There's just so many things that uh, that he's setting up here that become important later, right? And mm. um, and then the design of the Dementors, uh, the way that they're floaty and wispy, but also skeletal. They have the skeletal hands reaching out. It's very creepy for a children's ostensibly movie. And and uh, yeah, I mean, this moment alone signifies this is a different sort of film. Like there's mm-hmm. nothing like this in the other two. That that scene when it like crashes, like they're, the train is stopped and as they board, it like crashes open. And I'm just like, all I can think about is how are any of the teachers OK with this? Like, how is that like uh, like that's got to be they like I know that the Dementors are looking for series and everything like that, but like. It's got to be horrifying for anyone who's in that scenario. So, like, for the mentors right. to come aboard and be all creepy. And I was everything. never clear on how many stu- how many teachers would be on the on the same train ride. Is it everybody? Yeah, or I'm I sure would assume a lot of them. some of them are probably there early. Right? You gotta you gotta have pre prep for the starting semester. <laughs> right. I think a lot of them like live there. But yeah, I mean, yeah. Lupin Lupin was there, so I assume somebody else yeah. is there. And he wasn't happy with it. The, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but that scene, like the the creeping and the magic used to open that door, like the sort of like grasping the air that like pulls open the yeah. compartment door and and then starts sucking his soul out. We see his essence leaving his body. Like, what is that? We don't know. That's what I was going to ask you about. Is like what? So does that does that, is that like them sucking the happiness out? Is that sucking yeah. like part of the soul? Like, are they losing something there? Or is it just representative Maybe both. of like yeah? Like, are they actually losing part of their soul there? Probably not. Maybe. But like, I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> something's being pulled maybe out. harry's never never the same after every time that happens we i don't yeah. know yeah 
And that's what makes it scary, right? It's the unknown. And what is it? What is it doing to you? And uh, clearly, it's going to kill you if it keeps doing it. Yeah. Uh, and and why? And why is it so obsessed with Harry? And like all of that, like you know, it poses all these questions. Right. Um. And then we get the transition into Hogwarts with the chorus, and I I think that's a really cool scene. I I just the way it's the way it's shot the the way the the music sort of transition us transitions us inside, and then I also think the chorus is once again a foreshadow of the sort of new sound that is going to be employed for for the a lot of these um, magic uh, magic spells, especially the more imp- important ones like the Patronus, where you get almost like a chorus of angel sound that that it's very otherworldly and ethereal. And uh, it backs up sort of this like existential uh, threat that the Dementors pose and like the idea of happiness coming from this like chorus of angel spells um, that all works for me. And then it's interesting that they have a chorus here, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it almost as like a auditory uh, foreshadowing mm-hmm. moment. So you mentioned the the sound of magic, like the sound that the magic spells take yeah. on in this. And I find that to be, again, something that carries through. It's just these things, these things will he created or, you know, his team created the sound right. of magic. And and it, it like up until this point, I think there, you know, there's noises that go along with it. But like when you when Expelliarmus is cast, there's a specific sound to that. When Patronus is cast, there's a specific sound to that. And I think that that's genius. I think that that connecting, it's like a lightsaber making a certain noise. It's like those things yeah. that, that embed themselves in your brain, whether you realize it or it's subliminal or what, it's effective. And and to talk about sound in general, the score, again, John Williams, I don't know if you knew this or not, though, this is the last film that John Williams actually wrote new Harry Potter music for. Oh, no, I didn't know that. So, you know, he's still credited. They're still using his music in the following movies, but this is the last one that he wrote new music for hmm. so legendary john williams he's popped up many times in this podcast many many yeah. times so it's just i mean and like there's those little john williams moments where you hear the score rising and you can just you just feel like that that he, he just understands like in this case magic you know and like in another case space wars with wizards and then in another case you know jaws and all of these things he's just yeah. he's a master of his craft and and you know everyone knows it i have to point out too uh my wife uh, noticed that, you know, she's the one who actually got me onto the reflections thing. And she was talking about how, you know, Harry sees himself in the glass. Um, Harry sees himself later on when he sees this, when he thinks he sees his father, but it ends up being himself. Um, and then, and then uh, I watched that nerd writer video and he was talking about reflections. So obviously onto something there and like passing through mirrors, passing through windows. They're not always perfect reflections. Sometimes they're dark and muddied and, um, I think there's a long history of reflections, you know, meaning different things in literary pieces and in film. So um, it's interesting that he's engaging with that on top of the, the the sort of like clockwork nature and on top of what he's doing thematically with the with the colors and everything else. Like there's a lot going on in this movie. Definitely. Even Hogwarts itself is like a clock um, right. in this film, which and I'm not sure if that's true elsewhere, but you have a giant pendulum swinging behind them. Like it's looming and it's like itself a clock. Um, and in clockwork motion. Right. That um, specific portion, I think, is the clock tower. Like, there yeah. is there is a clock tower in Hogwarts. So I think like, they're, they're just showcasing that a lot in this movie. But like you say, like, like the, one of the things that, like, struck me this time, and, you know, I feel like every time I watch a movie, I, I notice something new, whether it's big or small. This time, I couldn't help but notice every single scene transition is masterfully planned. 
Every single mm. one. It'll be like you were just talking about the reflection in the glass where Harry's very dark and we go into it. That reflection from the glass in in the Hogwarts Express turns into a puddle that a wheel rolls over and it like, you know, fades. And then that's a tra- scene transition. Every single yeah. one is genius. And it's like that's the type of like it's it's so in keeping it keeps you engrossed in the film. It's not jarring. Right. It, it takes you from scene to scene rather than a cut. It's a transition. And it just like that was like really blowing me away in this one. And the reflections that you talked about, another reflection that I was thinking about is the Boggart, right? The Boggart is a yeah. reflection of you. It's a reflection of your fear. Well, and and held within a mirrored cabinet. Wardrobe, yeah. Wardrobe, whatever you want to call yeah. it, yeah. That the, that the class is looking at and that the camera actually enters through and like yeah. passes through. And those are the, way. like, the those are amazing. Those shots where they're traveling through glass is like absolutely you know it's just like the the that that takes so much work to pull off and he does it so many times and it's because he wants the again it's that film that film language like anyone even a child might not necessarily understand what just happened but it's in there subliminally like something's happened and it's like it doesn't necessarily have to bonk you over the head and say reflection 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 these like this this is what's going on but it's like an overall feeling that you get from from things like that yeah Okay, so let's talk about Draco exaggerating his exaggerating his his injury and the, all the Buckbeak stuff. Um, how do you like the Buckbeak scene? It was good. I mean, I and and I actually really I appreciated uh, Harry flying around on Buckbeak more. Um, I don't know if I've seen this movie more than maybe two other times, and this was a completely night and day different experience watching this movie, having just read the book. And it's because I can tell why things are important. <laughs> and I remember the first time I saw the Buckbeak thing going, why does this matter? And it's mm-hmm. because I'm coming off of the first two movies where they're like, none of this stuff really matters that much as far as like, it's just cool magic, like revel in it. Mm-hmm. But this is like, I thought when I first saw it, like, oh, it's just Harry Potter flying on a magical creature and we're going to spend all this time watching him do it. But here it's, um, it's showing... First off, Harry's sort of isolation, it, it, being sort of special, right? And like being the one to do this is sort of, sort of the nature of his reality. And then, and how isolating that can be. But then also setting up Buckbeak as an important character, you know, in and of itself. And uh, the connection between the two. Um, and then not to mention, you get the reflections of the water again as he's flying over it. So there's just all these things happening that that mm-hmm. makes that scene cooler to me. Um, and you get a cool sense of scale and you see uh, you see Hogwarts, you see all the stuff um, from the skies that um, shows how how a different perspective can be very valuable to, to Harry here, I think. And yeah. he's gaining one through this. Yeah. And I think that, like I said before, that that's like one of the ma- major things for me is is really getting a good understanding of Hogwarts, really understanding the space, where within space we are, I think helps to to ground this this whole, like the whole castle. I think before it was like, you know, we knew the Great Hall, we knew the Gryffindor Common Room, we knew the staircases, we knew like hallways here and there. We never got a sense of exactly where we were. We get repeat moments in specific locations. We get these huge moments that connect like, oh, where's the Whomping Willow in relation to the castle like we had that in in the second movie as well but like i think that we get a more clear version of it and you know the birds like whether it's that small bird that gets whacked or hedwig yeah the transitioning of the seasons there 
again, just amazing transitions. Yeah. And and establishing, like you said, like the grounds, the spaces, the important areas that we're going to see scenes in later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it serves sort of a sneaky purpose than, than maybe you don't even realize it's doing. Okay. So the next bit of summary is the fat lady's portrait is found ruined and empty. Hiding in another painting, she tells Dumbledore that Sirius has entered the castle. During a stormy Quidditch match against Hufflepuff, Dementors attack Harry, causing him to fall off his broomstick. At Hogsmeade, Harry is shocked to learn that not only has Sirius been his father's best friend and apparently betrayed them to Voldemort, but is also Harry's godfather. Lupin privately teaches Harry to defend himself against Dementors using the Patronus charm. Yeah, I mean, and speaking of Lupin, I mean, we got to talk about those Boggart scenes. Um, we, I know we mentioned them earlier with the reflection stuff, but I want you to tell me if I'm crazy because I, I'm starting to think I might be being haunted by a other project we've done or something. But, uh, at some point during this, uh, one of the students tur- transforms a giant snake boggart into a giant clown boggart <laughs> that is supposed to be funny, I guess, but is actually still quite scary. Is this a reference to Pennywise? Is there any chance that's what, what's going on here? I don't know. Um, Obviously, maybe. the new movies hadn't come out yet. Yet, the 1990 version had with Tim Curry, mm-hmm. and the book was out in the 80s. Possible that Alfonso Cuaron could have read it. Well, I'll put it this Famously, way. Famously, the Boggart is very similar to uh, you know a Pennywise-type creature. Yeah. I'll put it this way. I think that the 1990 miniseries mixed with the 1985, I think, 1984, 85 book made Six, people... 86, okay. So that... I think people were probably... There were people like in isolation who are afraid of clowns but like they that made a generation of people afraid of clowns period so i think to say that like it's not technically a reference in the way that like clowns are scary to a lot of people now i think that it probably so you're saying is. through cultural osmosis it might have been i think so yeah. but would you be shocked to learn that alfonso Cuarón was actually a fan of, of stephen king's it and and was specifically referencing pennywise here no i wouldn't be shocked I like, wouldn't yeah, be shocked either. Sure. I'm not saying that's what happened, but I wouldn't be shocked to hear that because to me it made enough sense. Like this, the, there's enough of there where it's like maybe, maybe he's doing that. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, we can move on. And I also think it's funny because somebody pointed out to us because we made a joke and I think our hundredth episode about like, oh, what's some recurring things we need to start doing for the podcast? And somebody made, uh, pointed out to us that we often <laughs> like reference it <laughs> because it was our first project, I guess. I don't know. And we reference it during a lot of other episodes. So I, I got to keep the tradition going here and reference it here. <laughs> yeah. It's always going to be there, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, but that Boggart scene is fun. I, I do like it. And I wanted to ask you, unless it, unless it's something that you don't want to talk about, what would your Boggart turn into? Oh God! You can name a couple of things. I have. I'll, I'll lead off if you need me to. Yeah, you lead off. I gotta think about that. Um, yeah, I gotta think. Okay, so mine, I think, is like everyone's fear ultimately. But like realistically, like I'm not afraid of heights. I'm not afraid of any like creatures, anything like that. For me, I think it's like I I'm afraid, and I, I think eventually in one of the Harry Potter books we get this, but like this, I, the losing of a loved one. So like that, mm. like that, like that, that's my, what does fear. that look like as a boggart though? It's okay. So, so, I mean, it's technically a spoiler, so skip like 15 seconds, but in one of the books, Molly sees, um, her family, like she sees the corpses of her family. It changes into the different corpses of her family. Uh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So that would be pretty terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, yeah, probably death. I think just death in general, whether that's personified or like my own death, mm-hmm. if I was confronted with that, would be pretty terrifying. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's the question, that, I guess. You know, that's it... scarier than like a snake or something for me, which I don't like snakes, but you know. But to some people, a snake might represent death. You know, it's like it could. Yeah, be, that's true. You know, that's so, true. But like, but in general, it, so is it? It's your death, or or just anyone's death, or death in general? Because I feel like a dementia... no, no, I think yeah, I think I think I think my death. I think the idea of death is frightening, mm-hmm. and you know, to I think to pretend otherwise um, is kind of silly, mm-hmm. um, at least personally. Um, and I, I fully admit that I fear death and, and I think that that's a normal human thing to be afraid of. <laughs> yeah, so, um, so, yeah, I think that would probably be mine. Uh, so, but, oh, I guess the other thing is like, it is a dementor for Harry kind of a representation of death because it's like he, because of the dementors, he hears his mother scream from when his mother died. Yeah. So it's like, I feel like well, we kind of have the same fear as Harry there. And, and honestly, that's, that actually is kind of a good point that the, a Boggart is treated as something you know, that's like not that, that that can be overcome, but like people being faced with their worst fears is incredibly dark. Mm-hmm. And the idea that a bunch of students are going to line up excitedly to be come face to face with their worst fear is, I don't know, man, like I would definitely this would be a traumatic day in class. Right. I, I, you know what I mean? Because some people's fears are not going to be, you know. Just like a, a snake or a, or a spider that you can put on ice skates or whatever, uh, roller skates. And that's what the scene basically shows us, right? Lupin has to jump in the right. way because it's like, what what would Harry's... Like he realizes as the clown is clicking back and forth what Harry's fear would be. He's like, is it Voldemort? Is it going to become Voldemort, Voldemort yeah. right now? Is it going to become, you know, death yeah. itself? And and I think that's kind of what we get out of it. Um, and then his becomes the moon. Right. So I, I feel yeah. like lucky day for Lupin, though, right? He got a few students who were afraid of normal things. Like, I, I mean, I think <laughs> exactly. Neville, like the idea of having yeah. students face their fears and, and make them funny and laugh at them and like like deal with it that way. Great idea in theory yeah. until a Harry Potter comes along and, and death is what they fear, or, you know, an embodiment of someone else dying or something like that. So let's talk about the Quidditch match. Well, first off, the fat lady is found to be missing. Dumbledore finds out the Sirius is in the castle. They have to try to protect the kids so they're all sleeping together in the in like the great hall how did they not think clearly they knew every there were students that were awake like severus and and dumbledore were having a conversation and they're talking about like headmaster remember i told you and this and that and they're talking about secret things in the you know it's obviously for the good of the audience but it was just it's funny to think that like harry obviously is awake right now somebody's awake Oh, I see. When they're all laying in the on the floor and they're walking, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do like the Great Hall with like that sort of starry galaxy thing up above, like that. Well, and, and and I feel like uh, doesn't doesn't um, Dumbledore say something kind of cheesy about like in dreams we can be truly free yeah. or something? I, I can't remember. Yeah, but I don't mind like that. that. I'm into my Dumbledore being like that. Yeah. It's fine, but it just like it was kind of like uh, almost condescending, right? <laughs> about like oh, we let them let them dream. They're just children, you know yeah yeah true i'm not saying that's not in character i mean it could be but yeah just it it stood out to me so we talked in the last episode about quidditch and and like you you still felt like you didn't uh connect with it quite as much do you i feel like this is one of the more exciting quidditch because the the addition of the storm the addition of the dementors the addition of the changed uniforms it seems like more more actiony did you were you into it or did it kind of straight yeah so i i got i got some feedback about that sort of uh indirectly um uh, one of my wife's friends had listened to the podcast and and uh maybe took some uh took some umbrage with me not liking quidditch oh yeah <laughs> how dare i <laughs> um and and i'm she's probably not alone thinking that 
Um, and, and, you know, I, I think it's interesting. It's notable that the Quidditch is not, uh, is sort of toned down in this movie. We get really just one real Quidditch scene. And mm-hmm. then the second one that comes, which is the one that I actually found less interesting, uh, doesn't, ha- doesn't occur in the film. Um, I don't know. I mean, like, I think it's fine. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, I totally think it's, it's, it's valid for people to look at me and go, how dare you? Right. Um, and, and I was thinking about it. I think if I was reading the book for the first time, I had never seen the movie yet. The book had just come out and I picked it up and read it. I didn't know what was coming. I would be way more into the Quidditch mm-hmm. than I am now revisiting after watching the entire series of movies. Um, because it just feels like slightly less important than the main plot to me right. at times. And like you said, in this movie, it works because it's the Dementor stuff. It has a, has a role to play. Um, uh, so yeah, I, I guess listen to our other episode. And I talk a little bit more about that. If yeah. You, if I think curious. visually, I think visually this one works really well because it is, it is distinctly different. I think for people yeah. who are like, Oh, Quidditch is getting old or something like that. If you felt like it was something that was, this is very di- clearly a different kind of Quidditch match. There's umbrellas flying through the air. The rain is pouring down. It's just a different, yeah scene than we've seen before it's not bright and colorful green grass and you know like everybody in the stands yeah. all happy and even during quidditch you can't escape the dementors and the darkness right and, and not to mention else, that's right? what i was going to say is that moment with the grim where harry's on the on the on his broomstick looks out and sees the grim great shot and then when he comes face to face with the dementors he's like dodging them and flipping around and falls off eventually i don't know i think that that's a fun quidditch scene for sure i agree so this is around the time that Harry uh, sneaks into Hogsmeade. You know, he's gotten the map from Fred and George, which I wanted to mention the ner- nerd writer made a great connection between the, the footsteps in the snow when he's using the invisibility cloak representing and kind of drawing parallels to the footsteps that we see on the Marauders map. That's awesome. I never even thought about that until I'd seen that video. Um, really cool connection and kind of foreshadowing that he was about to be, you know, it's like this footsteps have been shown a few times throughout the yeah. throughout this movie up to that point. So speaking of footsteps, uh, this is, I think, the first misstep um, that I would argue in this movie, and that is not making the connection between the Marauders map and Sirius Black and uh, James Potter and, 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 and the rest of them. You know, like we don't we get we get the names, but we're not told who Prongs is. We're not told. You know what I mean? Like we don't know. You're saying you who... would have liked to have eventually seen the scene that we got in the book with like kind of kind of showing their background any sort of acknowledgement because it's it's um later lupin doesn't even say like yeah this was a a a thing that we used um i mean it's implied i think for sure no because it's it's something that they stole from from uh like a a, a filch and it's just like a a magical item that lupin's like yeah i'm thinking i'm gonna let you have it it's it's magical and and like obviously they have a familiarity with it because sirius says like oh the map never lies and it's something that they used but it's not something that they like have ownership over and to me it's an it's an an item in the world that represents their friendship Mm -hmm. and drives home the idea that these guys and you know all knew each other when they were in school and they had a bond and uh, that bond is something that I don't think is emphasized enough in this movie. Mm-hmm. And because of it, later on, when we get the reveals that that uh, Sirius is actually a good guy, when he all of a sudden offers to have Harry come live with him, uh, I remember being completely disoriented the first few times I saw this movie and going like, wait a minute, this guy is like, oh, I guess he's good now. And like, even though he's good, like, I don't trust him. Like... I'm just starting to understand who he is and and oh wait a minute he so if he's good I have to think back about the conversation that was had about him being friends with James Potter and all this stuff and go 
So that, okay, this part was true and this part was not true. And, and I have to like let go of the villain part and replace it with the, and, and there's a lot of work I have to do while the movie's still going um, that in the book, like we talked about, the, the, the explanation scene is very long. And I'm not saying it needs to be as long in the movie, but it felt to me like there's a little, there's a few moments early on and then you follow it up with uh, maybe a little bit rushed scene at the reveal to where Sirius's connection to Harry and uh, the price he's paid for his friendship, the sacrifices he's made, um, some of that doesn't come across as strongly. And I think that is the core and maybe the most important bit um, coming out of the third book. And I can see that if you're a huge book fan, uh, being a little frustrated that that message isn't as isn't delivered as well, I would argue, in this in the movie. Um, for someone like me who hadn't read the book, just saw the movie, I never felt the connection that people had to Sirius Black. That that I noticed other people who read the book loved Sirius Black, one of their favorite characters. Right. And reading the book myself, I can see why. Right. But the movie itself, I don't think quite achieves that. And I think that is a slight flaw in this movie. All right. I'm of I'm of two minds with this. So uh, let me start with my first one. As as the book okay. reader who went into this movie, I absolutely agree. I wish there was a scene that that showed or or even some explanation, some connection there. I totally agree with that. From yeah. the from the flip side, in wanting to tell an efficient story and wanting to like, I understand what you're saying in terms of like laying it all out. But there's a couple of moments in these book in these movies where it's rewarding to book fans maybe more for having read and seeing them. Um, I don't know. I feel like this might be one of those scenarios because I didn't see this movie without having already read it. You know, I'd never seen right. the, I never had that experience. So I knew what the importance was. And I think that in future movies, we get more of what the importance is between that connection as well. But for the, for what you're saying right now, I get, I get why you could approach it and think that like, it's, it's kind of lacking in, in sort of the connection between them because it is important going forward. Like the connection between James and, and Sirius is important. And I think it is driven home even more. But like you say, yeah, I, I totally get that. I could see having just, I don't know. I don't think we needed any sort of flashback or anything like that. But having said uh, in more words, like we used to come here and hang out and or yeah. in the street. And shack, I think the or, Marauder's Map, as bringing it back to my original point, I yeah. think was a way, was a path to doing it. Mm -hmm. There should have been an explanation of who prongs and, and I forget the names, all the names, mm -hmm. right? Who they are. And the fact that they used the map and used to do things together as students would have further shown the friendship um, of these characters and and given us some more connections, right? Because otherwise we're being we're being asked to remember conversations that happened a while ago in the film, and those conversations were about why Sirius Black was such a villain, and that that was like the main takeaway. Mm -hmm. And you have to like discount the villain part and remember the the other part that was talking about him being friends. And, and and that is kind of hard to do in the moment, which you have to do in order to buy the warmth that is all of a sudden being felt there. Um, I think for and, me, and like I said, it's hard for it's hard for you to probably imagine what it would have been like to see this movie without having read the book, because that's not how you experienced it. But I, I think I think that's the challenge that the, the, that honestly this movie needs to rise to is to convey that very important relationship um, and convey it convincingly. And to me, I'm not saying it fails. I just don't think it quite pulls it off. 
like it, it, it to me that's where it gets a little bit of a of a, of a negative in my marks my overall marks <laughs> so on the flip side of that though the the i think the thing that does really sell it to me the the, the thing that does make me buy serious as you know the the person who could take Harry into a happier life. And, you know, the the fact that he is to be trusted is the reaction by Pettigrew, right? So as soon as you make the connection, they're like, oh, it was Pettigrew and not Sirius. All their conversation there in the Shrieking Shack, to me, is always sold it enough, I guess, because what we're getting is Pettigrew is saying, you don't understand what the what the Dark Lord can do. You don't understand the power that he has and, and how much he can affect you. And then we get Sirius saying, I would have died. I would have died rather than betray my yeah. friends. And I think that is yeah. enough of a line right there. And the way that it's delivered, to, to sell it to me at least, in addition to the fact that like we can see Pettigrew is a coward and that he clearly did do this. So everything up sure. to that point was put on Sirius. So I don't know. I I, I see both sides. No, I, and, and you're right. I, I think that the reveal that, that he's a good person and that he's not guilty works. I think it's the connection to Harry that needed like maybe a little bit more buffing up and a little bit more of like the connection to James Potter and their and, and Harry's parents and yeah. and 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 all of that and the being a godfather and and what he, how he originally thought that relationship was going to go that then mm. got thrown off by going going to Azkaban. That's the stuff that was a little little lacking, but but you're right. The the reveal that he's a good person. I also really loved a moment where he he screams about like you know twelve years in Azkaban and like you can feel his pain and mm-hmm. what he's been through and why he's so ragged now. Um, and and there's just a lot of great acting going on. And um, you know, it, it, it's hard to be a little bit critical here because I feel like, um, it's such a good movie. And 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 I'm trying not I'm not trying to take away from that. Um, but I, I am also, I, I want to acknowledge that, that if you, if you are a huge super fan of those moments in the book and you don't see them here, you could also be like a little frustrated with feeling like those moments weren't delivered in with the same power that, that you felt them when you read them. And, um, as someone who also saw the movie, I have the experience of knowing that these, these moments didn't land for me the mm-hmm. way that they do from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you can come in as someone who's read the book and you see this movie, you can come in and with that pre-knowledge and just, and just be happy because you already have it. You already understand what's Mm -hmm. going on. Um, so, so it depends on how you watch this movie, I guess, and what you're looking for. Yeah. I, I, I do feel like there's a lot of like legwork that's put in to tie a lot of these characters together. So like the conversation with Harry on the bridge with, with Lupin, where he's talking about his mother and he's talking about his father ties Lupin to Harry that ties their family together that then when we see Lupin's on Sirius's side we can tie all that together as well we know Lupin's a good guy but in that moment there's that twist where we don't know where where he's landing I think I think there's a there's enough there to have tied tied all the characters together to like explain it but I do understand like making it maybe a little more clear would have helped audiences but let's catch us up to kind of where we're at right now um right so this Quidditch match Harry falls off the broomstick Broomstick is destroyed. Harry learns about Sirius being his father's best friend, and then we're getting loop. We're getting the lessons that Lupin is is teaching Harry how to use the Patronus charm because he's been attacked by a Dementor again. Um, which I actually love those those scenes in the office in Lupin's office where they're learning where Harry's learning the Patronus and and tying it to a specific memory. Yeah. So to move on to the next section, after Harry, Ron, and Hermione witness Buckbeak's execution. Ron's pet rat Scabbers bites him and escapes. When Ron gives chase, a large dog appears and drags both Ron and Scabbers into a hole at the Whomping Willow's base. 
This leads the trio to an underground passage of the Shrieking Shack, where they discover that the dog is actually Sirius, who is an Animagus. Lupin arrives and embraces Sirius as an old friend. He admits to being a werewolf and explains that Sirius is innocent. Sirius was falsely accused of being of betraying the Potters to Voldemort as well as murdering 12 muggles and their mutual friend Peter Pettigrew. It is revealed that Scabbers is actually Pettigrew and Animagus who betrayed the Potters and committed the murders. Yeah, which I stepped all over this scene talking about it. <laughs> yeah, we're caught up now though, so we're good. Yeah, yeah. I do want to ask you about the Animagus because I, want, I meant to ask in the first one, What's your? We know our Patronuses. We've talked about our our Boggarts, What our Boggarts would become? What is your yeah. Animagus? Oh, I'm a dog too, just like Sirius. Yeah, absolutely, man. What, what uh, color? I, what I'm breed? such a dog person. I, yeah. I love dogs. I always have, and uh, I assume that if I were to transform into an animal, it would probably be a dog. Yeah. Maybe I don't know a specific dog. Maybe a lab, black lab. I don't mm-hmm. know. I'm into it. My black lab's sitting behind me right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, I as much as I love dogs, and believe me, I do. I I feel like I would, I really would want to become a bird. I just feel Ooh. like there's a freedom to that, right? Like what becoming, kind of bird? It's a good question. I, I was thinking about it. I think probably like a falcon. Okay, so not like a, uh, not a peacock. Peacock, yeah. <laughs> Pe- a penguin, actually. I'd be a penguin. <laughs> yeah. No, a falcon. That's a falcon. cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm into that flying. I just yeah. think like the the you know being able to fly would be would be nice. Okay, so the next section here, Snape arrives to apprehend Black, but Harry knocks him unconscious with the Expelliarmus charm. After re- after forcing Pettigrew back into human form, Lupin and Sirius prepare to kill him, but Harry convinces them to turn Pettigrew over to the Dementors. As the group departs, the full moon rises and Lupin transforms into a werewolf. Sirius transforms into his dog form to fight him off. In the midst of the chaos, Pettigrew transforms back into a rat and escapes. Harry and Sirius are attacked by Dementors, and Harry sees a figure in the distance save them by casting a powerful Patronus. He believes the mysterious figure is his deceased father before passing out. He awakens to discover that Sirius has been captured and sentenced to the Dementors' kiss. This is, in and of itself, a surprising and exciting end to this story uh, we talked about, right? Like, uh, you get the confrontation, but then you get this surprise twist, and you get the you get the werewolf attack, and you get... Uh, uh, the, 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 the moment of casting the Patronus and, and saving, uh, Sirius, but then there's also the mystery of like, was that his father or was that something else? Um, and that obviously that leads into the sort of like fourth act we talked about in the book, which is, uh, definitely a change for the, for this series. Um, this is all just good stuff and, and good storytelling, extremely well plotted. Um, and, and the way it plays in with the other timeline, uh, just all works really well. Also, what a uh, what an awesome and scary uh, design for this werewolf. Uh, the lankiness, the, mm-hmm. the 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 danger. Um, it, it all just works really well. Yeah, they could have turned him into like a huge, bulky, traditional werewolf, but they went with like kind of a skinny. It's in fitting with Lupin. Uh, I, I really like that design for sure. And and yeah. you know, a, a lot of the CG looks good still. By the way. All of it, actually. Yeah, it does. It I really agree. does. The Dementors look great. Sirius is the dog. Like, you can tell that it's not, like, up to today's exact, you know, what we're getting right. in the effects departments. But, I mean, everything looks fine. Like, really good still. The werewolf. Yeah. This And, and from here on, this, this whole movie is just absolutely incredible. All of this stuff, the way it weaves in and out, the way, in a second, when we get to the time turner, the, the, the score starts to take on, like, a ticking time clock. Uh, yeah. mo- like this sort of sound that goes along with it too. It's like that tick, 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 that's associated with the time turner. Um, mm. 
I mean, it's great. And and I want to talk about the Dementor's kiss, though. The This, like, I believe from what I understand in the book, it's like a legit kiss, like mouth to mouth, and they're sucking at your soul. Um, but I think this representation really? is even scarier because it's like you can yeah. see what's happened. And I might be wrong. Somebody, I'm sure someone will correct me uh, if, if it's not an actual <laughs> yeah. kiss in the book. I just remember reading, like, when we just read it, I felt like it, it was saying, like, actual mouth to mouth. Yeah, but like the, the the happiness or whatever we talked about being sucked out, that stream being sucked out, led by like his actual soul floating out. I felt like all that really worked and, and like all the Dementors coming down was, was really, really creepy and scary. Yeah, there's a lot of them too. And the way they swarm, um, I, I did, I got to say, I I mean, I, maybe that's the thing we do. We always reference other projects, but mm-hmm. I was getting Ringwraith vibes again. And I oh, think yeah. you have to, you have to acknowledge that there is some sort of visual referencing here of of the ring wraiths and the way that they encircle Frodo um, on Weathertop, I think in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking of that a little bit here. Right. I mean, yeah, a hooded, large hooded creature with some sort of powers. Like, I think that it's in very... Can't I mean, see their faces, you know, otherworldly and ethereal time, you know, as, as, as Frodo puts on the ring and sees their other forms, right? Like, we're getting some otherworldliness and some some uh ideas that there are things going on beyond our understanding and yeah um yeah i don't know i just i i find it to be and once again it might just be that sort of cultural osmosis thing i'm not saying necessarily that alfonso Quran watched fellowship of the ring and was like i gotta reference this um does that even line up timeline wise i guess it does yeah it would have come out before but um i'm not saying that's what's going on here i just think that uh ring race and and dementors share some common dna yeah um, interesting motives though, right? Like, I feel like we know the motives of a, of a ring wraith. They are the motives of Sauron. Like, yeah, we, to get the, the ring. ring. <laughs> and and in this the case, ring, the guess, Dementors, yeah. like, I, you never really know where they're landing. Like, you, they seem they're like they're always yeah. evil, but are they, they're supposedly a, a hand of the, of the, you know, ministry. And it's like, what's, can they actually control them or do they just set them loose? I don't know. Yeah. Real crazy stuff. Um, yeah, we talk about them in the last episode, I think, and and talk about the danger they represent of the mm-hmm. wizarding world that is barely controlled. Yeah. Uh, this is the last section here. Acting on Dumbledore's advice, Harry and Hermione travel back in time with Hermione's time turner and watch themselves and Ron repeat the night's events. They save Buckbeak from execution and witness the Dementors overpower Harry and Sirius. The present Harry realizes that it was actually him who conjured the Patronus and does so again. Harry and Hermione rescue Sirius, who escapes with Buckbeak. Exposed as a werewolf, Lupin resigns from teaching to prevent an uproar from parents. He also returns the Marauder's map back to Harry, given he is no longer in authority to confiscate the contraband. Sirius sends Harry a firebolt broom, and he happily takes a ride on it. Man, this, I I have to say, this, the idea that McGonagall is going to just let Hermione have a time turner to attend more classes is a plot hole it just it doesn't make sense it's too powerful a magic item and mcgonagall is too much of a stickler about the rules to allow a student to use it it's like it's like i don't even know what a good example like a metaphor would be but 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 my thing is is technically when it all when push came to shove mcgonagall knew hermione and hermione never betrayed mcgonagall in any way with the time turner she all she did was go to classes and use it to go to classes all year round i don't know it doesn't bother me because ultimately like it didn't become an issue like it wasn't they didn't mess up the timeline like it all it all worked out but the but what you're saying is like the you know the possibility of it being there is too much to give to a kid which i get but i'm still for it because mcgonagall knew and hermione's (laughs) a hermione did right by her 
It's fine. I mean, it's a YA story, ultimately. So some of that I'm willing to suspend disbelief and just go with it. We're also at a transition period where some of that is okay, maybe. You know what I mean? Um, so so ultimately, it doesn't ruin the story for me. Um, but I get I get why people are can can take umbrage with this. And um, it, to me, it comes down to the power of the device and the potential it has to change reality. Um, it's just it's just too big right. to be given to a student. So so not necessarily to what you're saying specifically, but after the conversation we had on our last episode, I started thinking about time turners and I started thinking about why they weren't utilized before the, they were destroyed in Harry Potter. In terms of world breaking, why why wasn't a time turner used to reverse the the things that Voldemort did and to save people right. and to jump in and, and like fight him in some way or do something differently or not, you know, time turner back to the point that you kill Hitler. You know what I mean? Like that sort of kill Voldemort. Like just like everybody says, right. like, would you go back in time and kill Hitler? Why wouldn't you just time turner back in time and kill Voldemort? Right. Because you're saying time turners existed around the time that like. Harry Potter's family got murdered. So why didn't Dumbledore use the time turner to go back so he could save them? And, but yeah. I think it ultimately comes back to that idea of determinism, right? Like maybe it's like even if you time turned back to that, you couldn't you couldn't change those things because like in, in some way, nothing like be, even though Harry and Hermione go back in time, they didn't change anything. They just made sure right. things happened as they did. Yeah. Wait, well, now we're getting to our arrival stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to our last episode to talk about that. No, and, and like I'm okay with time travel being used in a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting. I think it adds. It it, it definitely draws a lot of uh, challenging questions for like how does this universe work? Because like you said, we see the rocks hitting people. We see uh, the, we hear the howl that saves them so that they can go on. Uh, Hermione and Harry Potter c- can go on to do the things that they're doing because they were saved by their past selves. So it's almost one timeline. It's very Terminator. It's very unified um, and deterministic, really, like you said. Um, it works narratively. It's the con- it's the conceptually the idea of these things existing in this world and the and the idea that um, McGonagall of all people would be brazen enough to allow someone to use it just is pushing it too too far for me. Yeah. Let's move on though. I don't want to harp on it too much because I do I do actually really think this is a cool time travel story. You know what I mean? Like set all that aside. This is a well-done time travel story. I love the way it's crafted. Uh, it was in the book as well. Mm-hmm. I think it's executed well mm-hmm. and uh it makes for a very fun inf- very fun and interesting into this movie. Not to mention Buckbeak coming back, being alive, and then uh the way Buckbeak saves him from the werewolves, which I think is a movie only thing. Um, saves him from Lupin. Uh, really cool. It just makes me like Buckbeak even more in the movies than I did in the book, which I liked him a lot in the book too. Yeah, and and you just kind of made me think of something because Pettigrew escapes, right? A couple of things that I want to talk about with the map and time travel and all these things. If we want to talk about potential, you know, world-breaking things. So first off, it's been said a million times, but didn't Fred and George using the using the Marauder's map ever see a guy named Peter Pettigrew hanging out with Harry Potter with Ron Weasley and Harry Potter? Right. You know what I mean? They would have seen, <laughs> yeah. potentially. You might have noticed that. Yeah. I mean, maybe they, even if they don't know who Pet- Peter Pettigrew is, it would have been weird to see the name Peter Pettigrew. Right. Because it's yeah. like in their in their common or in their in their, yeah. their bedroom where all of them are sleeping. And then there's one additional person who they don't know. So anyway, yeah. moving Not on to mention, it's kind of creepy to imagine th- these guys having this map all the time and being able to know where everyone is and what they're doing at all times. Yeah. It's very. Uh, yeah. 
you know that's a that's a violation of privacy that's pretty significant yeah luckily our heroes never use it for anything too too nasty or, or bad so <laughs> right right yeah so uh another one another just go with thing. it <laughs> <laughs> so another yeah. one is uh in in this film there's a reference actually to another character in the harry potter lore on the map there's a reference to another character it's newt scamander um and so i didn't catch that so how how is that reference on the, in the map he's on the map at one point and what people's theory is because he's on there you know up until this point like, there were no plans to have you know to, in 2004 there was no plans to have an, any newt scamander adventures as far as i know right so i think that it was just an he was a famous character who was known for you know creating the fantastic beasts and where to find them novels within the world of harry potter so right he was friends with Dumbledore so people theorize that maybe he was just coming to visit Hogwarts and he was wait, there wait, so he his footsteps are walking around yes. on the map yes wow I did not catch that I don't know how I missed that someone found that some eagle eye viewers found that and I, I I mean I didn't notice it I saw somebody say that they saw it online and I saw a picture a screenshot of it so it's there huh so I don't know interesting to think about he would be very old I mean I guess Dumbledore would be even older though so it's not like it's not possible um, but right. we'll see if it becomes world breaking at some point with all the new stuff that's been added with the the newer movies. Yeah. Another interesting thing to think about. So Lupin, he has the Marauders map, right? And he sees Harry, Peter Pettigrew, Ron Weasley, Sirius Black. He sees all these people on the map running towards the Whomping Willow, and that's how he knows to go to the Whomping Willow. Wouldn't he have seen the duplicate? harry and hermione on the map as well if the map never lies yeah you're right so we'd see we would see two harry's two Hermione. maybe he just was like either he didn't see it which we or can, he didn't look for that or he didn't yeah he was so map, excited by like the fact that peter pettigrew Sirius black all the stuff was going down that he saw where they were and just ran there immediately another thing that yeah. i was just you know brought to my attention so i figured i'd point it out so another thing that's interesting about these plot holes idea is someone who, who you know i am in the midst of writing a novel right now um Plot holes can seem like a death knell, you know, like, oh, God, there's a potential plot hole here. And, and now I just got to burn my entire manuscript. Um, it can show that, like, sometimes stories can exist with plot holes. Mm -hmm. It's not that you want to, like, you should obviously be looking to fill them in and explain them as much as possible. But, like, if, you know, analysis by guys like us or, or whoever, you know, people are going to find plot holes in your work. It's mm -hmm. going to happen, especially if you write something that's intricate and, and long form and, and has spaces for this to happen. And uh, it can be okay. You know what I mean? Like, it's okay on occasion to have a, a plot hole. You hope that they're not gaping massive ones that that are breaking things, but it's okay you yeah. know you don't have to you don't have to burn your manuscript down just because you find a potential little minor plot hole in there and i'm talking to myself by the way yeah. when i say this i'm totally speaking to myself <laughs> <laughs> that is the lesson i'm learning from this <laughs> we were we were getting nitpicky so i was i was down to get nitpicky um i no, don't no, I all those you. things that i just named i don't care about because ultimately like this like i said this is i i really enjoy this novel and honestly like i said this could be my favorite harry potter movie and i i would honestly be willing to go as far as like i think i may enjoy this film more than i enjoy the book so i'm sure that'll anger some harry potter fans but i mean that's just how <laughs> i feel about it when you when you put a material like this that i'm already a huge fan of in the fans of, in the hands of a filmmaker like alfonso Cuaron and like what he can bring to it and the layers that he can create and like the the legacy that he would have within this universe i just don't think you can you can look at that and not realize how important it is and and i think that's part of the reason why it's so important to me you know i think i agree with you and it, as much as i've been a little bit critical um i think intellectually visually artistically 
I prefer this film to the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But I will say that I think the emotional core of this story is better handled in J.K. Rowling's hands. And I got to give it to her. Mm -hmm. I think that the understanding her story and knowing what's important for the emotional arc of these characters, um, the, the, it connects better in the book. And I'm really glad that I've read it now because Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that these two as a pair work really, really well, right? Like you, you get that in the book, but then you see the artistic vision of this film and, and the way those two interact with each other is really fun. And I don't think, you know, and, and this is something bigger about adaptation podcasts, which there are others out there, you know, spoiler we're we're not the only ones doing this. However, I think we do it in somewhat of a unique way in that we don't always pit the film and the book against each other. Right. Um, it's not always a versus this, not a fight. It's like, which one's better book or movie. And mm-hmm. they have to battle to the death and they're going to be only one. No, like we don't do that because we, I, I think we like to celebrate both and look at like what is valid and useful in each, uh, version of this story. And, uh, I, you know, I don't like that narrative. Honestly, I don't like the idea that these things have to battle each other. Um, cause they both can serve different purposes. And, once again, uh, here, yeah, if I had to pick one, yeah, I think I do maybe like the movie a little more, but I think the experience of reading this book has shown me that the way that I think the story is best consumed is with both, mm-hmm. you know? I think I'd, I'd feel sorry for someone who only read the book and didn't see this movie. Right. But I, vice versa, I think that it was enriched. I think that the film was better for the fact that I've now read the book. Yeah, and I do want to mention, like, the the emotional core that you're talking about. I, I do agree with that because... As much as I've realized over time that the you know James Potter and his friends are not as likable as I thought that they were when I was a kid growing up because there are right. things that like it's pretty fucked up some of the stuff that they do and you know I can understand why a lot of people don't necessarily you know relate to those characters but I was always really really drawn to their stories and the the story of all four of them together around the castle and the adventures that they would have so like that being that, that that's one of my favorite parts of the books, I, I totally get like not having it in the movies and, and how that affects it. Um, so yeah. Who I are the four, by the way? It's 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 Lupin, Sirius, uh, James. And Pettigrew. Peter Pettigrew. And Peter Pettigrew? Yeah. He's the fourth? Yep. Okay, so uh, Harry's mother was not a part of that? No. What's Harry's mother's name? Lily Potter. Lily Potter was not a part of that. Okay, yep. interesting. And then Snape, obviously... I feel like so there's a lot of talk about bullying Snape mm-hmm. and I feel like in this book and in this movie I don't get a lot of the what was going on right, other yep. than a little bit of like uh serious saying oh you always with your uh, you know like chemistry sets and stuff um and I don't remember that a lot in the book but like I'm assuming that stuff we'll learn about more as we go on like yeah. the actual bullying quote-unquote I feel like on. I feel like you're you're catching the pole right now you're, the JK Rowling's got the pole like now you're starting to re- like like once we once we get into it for sure there she's she's setting a lot of stuff up with with Snape in particular, yeah. Sna- cool. well, Snape, James, Sirius, yeah. Pettigrew, everything, Lupin, Lily Potter, yeah. a lot of stuff. We definitely got more of that in the book than we got here, right? right? Yep. You know, and and that's some of the best stuff, I think. The couple of things that I do want to mention because we talked about the things that really, um, I think, enrich this world. Uh, 
things like the the moment when the maid is walking up to the to the room at the leaky cauldron knocking on the door and then like a creature roars at her and she's like i'll come back later like these funny comedic moments of like fleshing out the world like another one that i loved was um all the all the guys in their in their bedroom taking the the beans or whatever that was making them have different animal noises just a scene like that to to humanize and and like show what it would be like every night at at Hogwarts and like like the camaraderie and the friendship around these people in their houses and I I, just all of that like there's so much of that throughout this film and and it really does create what I think is um one of my favorite Harry Potter movies and and it's just like it it, the legacy that this movie has is like I, I don't think it can be overstated and you know anecdotally that scene in particular made me kind of wish that i had uh stayed in a dorm my freshman year of college right but i didn't you know and and uh, it made me go like oh you, you i don't know it makes you kind of yearn for that like uh that close friendship at a school in particular mm-hmm. um that that would have been very cool to experience yeah and i think that's a lot of what harry potter as we talked about does right it's like the yeah the experiences that you can have at school with friends and who become family and how close everything is i think it's also notable that we don't get a christmas scene in this movie yeah there is no christmas and that's something we talked about like i think it's appropriate that we covered some of the other ones around christmas time because those are the christmas movies and maybe it returns to it i don't know i don't remember but here it's interesting that we don't really get that you know and we don't get that feeling that christmas gives us but we do get like a fall winter feeling with pumpkins around and we get like the the snow on the ground, the snow on the Whomping sure. Willow, a lot of that kind of stuff. So I think that I still it's still in keeping with this season from like October on. I think we'll, yeah. like a lot of people start and I think it probably is prompted by those first two, but it like kind of continues the tradition. Well, it has been a lot of fun returning to the world of uh, the wizarding world of Harry Potter this year. Uh, I, I I don't know, like I I want to I want to revisit soon. I I, I don't want to wait another full year. I'm I'm eager to get into more of this story because I feel like I appreciate it a lot more now, mm-hmm. and I'm happy that I, reading this book and and watching this movie got me excited to to cover more Harry Potter in the future. So if you liked this. Uh, let us know because so, you know the more excitement there is around projects the more we're going to want to get back to them as soon as possible so mm-hmm. so convey that to us because we love to hear we'd love to hear from you yeah and this like we've talked about is a transitional period for harry potter so the next ones i think for the most part are, are pretty grown up pretty pretty uh yeah. dealing with some crazy issues and stuff so i i can't wait to get back to these ones because this back I, I would say like you know i've read through the first three thousands you just like so many times like uh, an uncountable number of times and then and then four i've read through a ton five i've read through a a bunch and then six and seven i would say that are the ones that i've read through maybe like three or four times each so (laughs) well and that number is zero for me for all the rest of these novels so it i'm i'm excited to have the same experience i had this time of like really learning the world and 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 learning the story in a deeper way and uh, i want to read the next one now so i'm into it um but that's going to be it for this coverage for us for now um we hope you come back with us next week we're going to be covering watchmen in advance of the hbo series coming out we're going to read the graphic novel then we're going to watch the original film just as like a reminder and hopefully everybody joins us for that as a to reminisce a little bit about what we've gotten with watchmen and and get ready for the show that's going to be coming out so we hope you join us for that um we also wanted to thank a new patron we have rebecca h thank you for your support we appreciate it 
And uh, we love all our patrons. And if you wanted to find out how to become one yourself, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. You can get access to bonus content on there, including things like our brand new reading prompts we're going to be doing, which is uh, when we're giving you advance notice of like, hey, this is what's coming up. If you want to get a jump start on the reading, maybe this is the next two or three projects we're going to be doing. Um, these are going to be brief little things we're going to be releasing to our new $1 tier. So if you want to learn about that and what other kind of things we're doing, check that out, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those adding to film. And join the Council of Inklings because that's where we mostly communicate with everybody. We post a lot of polls in there. We post uh, upcoming news for any adaptations. So definitely check that out. Yeah, and if you wanted to support the podcast but you don't have any money right now, totally understandable. Money's tight for a lot of people. We get it. Uh, leaving a rating review online is a perfect way to do that. We woke up to a new one today. I don't know if you even saw it yet. I shared it on social media. I love to see them. It always brightens my day. It made me happy to see. So leave us a rating and review somewhere online, iTunes if you can, um, and it's greatly appreciated. We'd like to thank Goblins from Mars for the use of our intro and outro music, and thank you to Jennifer Delazana for providing our transcripts. All right, I'm going to leave one last little secret tidbit here at the end that I forgot to mention in the episode. So. Ooh, a secret tidbit. J.K. Rowling said she got goosebumps when she saw several moments in this film as they inadvertently referred to events in the final two books. She stated people are going to look back on the film and think that those were put in deliberately as clues. So there's two things in this movie that she she was like surprised made it in because they were almost like kind of predictions by Alfonso Cuaron or something like that. Um, I don't know. Interesting to think about. Can you, do you want to share what those two no, are? No, or is that too much of a spoiler? I feel like it might be too much of a spoiler. And I don't even know that I'm correct. There's a couple of things. But I mean, like everybody's seen these movies by now, right? Here, okay, let's give a spoiler warning and then you can share them with me. Or do you okay. not want me to know? Uh, no, I'd rather you not. I almost One of them I'll tell you. One of them. I, okay, there, tell us so, one of them. So this is my Spoiler thing. warning. If you don't want to do check out. Go ahead. So this is my thing. There's, there's, I think there are a couple of things that could be that could be leading you down a certain path. One of them is the way that Snape protects Harry, Ron and Hermione when the werewolf is attacking. Um, You know, it's like up to this point, we've seen that he is, he, you know, in the first book, he, in the first movie as well, he was like counterspelling Quirrell in order to like save Harry on the broomstick. There are moments of him being good, but actually putting himself in the way of, of any harm that would come to these three. Um, I feel yeah, like could right. be one of them. And again, these are these are just my theories on what they could be. These the, I could be totally wrong, but this is just what I'm drawing from. Another one, I think uh, there's another one that I think I know that I don't want to say. And then there's a third one that I think might also be. And it's just the relationship with Hermione and Ron. I think in this film is right. like clearly no, building. Yeah, I did catch that. Actually, there was a couple of moments between Ron and, and Hermione that that seemed to be sort of ref, like a precursor to a potential romantic uh, yeah. thing going but on. But I think that them, that's so. like more obvious. I don't think she would be that surprised to see that um, in the yeah. in the movie. But who knows? Maybe that could be the other one. The other one that I know I don't want to say because I, I want you to go in fresh. Okay. All right. Fair enough. So uh, I guess that's going to be it. Uh, until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>